Welcome to the first episode of the Dumbarton Oaks Byzantine podcast series. I'm Anna Stavrakopoulou, the Program Director in Byzantine Studies at Dumbarton Oaks. We are joined today by Anthony Kaldelis and Jake Ransohoff. Anthony Kaldelis is the Professor and Chair of the Department of Classics at The Ohio State University. He is the author of many books, including The Christian Parthenon, Hellenism in Byzantium and the Byzantine Republic, which have been translated into French, Greek, and Russian. His interlocutor, Jake Ransohoff, is a doctoral candidate at the History Department at Harvard. His dissertation studies punitive mutilation and the politics of disfigurement in Byzantium, the medieval West, and the Mediterranean world. Among several fellowships and awards he has received, Jake has also been a Tyler Fellow at Dumbarton Oaks. They will be discussing The Roman Mind and the Power of Fiction by John S. Richardson, who is a professor of classics at the University of Edinburgh, with main research interests in Roman imperialism and Roman law. The article appeared as a chapter in The Passionate Intellect, Classical Traditions, edited by Lewis Ayres and published by Rutgers University in its Studies of Classical Humanities series in 1995. The answer questions like, how strong was the power of imagination for the Romans? How does legal fiction contribute to equal rights citizenship? How inclusive were the rights of the immigrants in Roman society? So, Anthony, um, why did you suggest this reading? Would you like to tell us? Right, so I, I'm going to make two, two crazy claims and then posit a, the mystery that got me thinking along this, uh, down this path. The crazy claim is that, well, we tend to think of the ancient Romans as a pragmatic people. You know, they were good at aqueducts and roads and, you know, boots on the ground and creating empires and things like that. Whereas we tend to think of the Greeks as the more intellectual, imaginative, ancient people. Um, and what I'm going to suggest is that, in fact, the Romans had a tremendous power of the imagination that was so strong that it, it reshaped their world and the world of Byzantium on a pretty fundamental level. Um, and they exercised this imagination in ways that I haven't seen in other cultures. Uh, and this is part of the broader project that, I, that I've embarked on for some time of understanding Byzantium in, in Roman terms, right? And I wanted to get past things like laws and armies and institutions and get into the deeper sort of substratum of, um, the, of acts of imagination and the power of the mind um, that structured, I think, Byzantium on a deep level. And so one of the mysteries that got me thinking along this line was the following question. How is it possible for the Romans of, say, Constantine's time to imagine building a new Rome in the East and to treat new Rome eventually over time as if it were a kind of branch office of Rome in the East, endowing it? with the same institutions and the same name and the same legal political status in the empire and so forth. 
because this is, if you stop and think about, I mean, we, we take this for granted as just something that happened. It's fundamental for Byzantine civilization. But if you stop and think about it, you've got to wonder what mental faculties enabled people to imagine such a thing. Because we don't do that. Right? I mean, we know about New York, or we know about New England, we know about such things, but they're not understood to be either extensions or a kind of copy and paste version of the original in a new location treated as equivalent to it. Right? That's not how we think about it. And sometimes states will move their capital from one place to another, but not duplicate it. And I was wondering how it was sort of mentally possible, like in the realm of the imagination, to conceive of such a thing. And, and I, I knew that the answer had to lie, it had to have Roman roots. So I went looking for Roman sort of fictive acts of the imagination. And over time, I eventually figured out that there was something going on in Roman civilization that we don't often talk about. And, and this article addresses it. Now, let me just say that this is one of a number of studies. It's possibly the most accessible one. It's called The Roman Mind and the Power of Fiction uh, by uh, Richardson. Um, I should also say that there are some very good treatments of the same thing, thing by Cliff Ando, uh, especially in his book, uh, Roman Social Imaginaries, which is exactly what I'm getting at. And the idea is basically like this. The Romans had an extraordinary capacity to commit socially to realities that were the product of a kind of legal imagination. In other words, they would decide under certain circumstances that they were going to treat this thing as if it were that thing and commit to that, right? In other words, there are social and historical consequences to doing that. And Richardson mentions a few examples, for example, uh, such as adoption. So Roman adoption, it's a pretty prevalent um, social form, um, especially among the Roman aristocracy, we know it best, which is where you treat someone else's son, biological son, as if he were your own. With no legal qualifications or distinctions or nuance, no, no, you, you commit to that. Um, and other, other examples include um, pro-magistracies. In other words, appointing a person to hold a position as if he held that position, but doesn't really, in order to extend the, um, a, a person's ability to hold that position. Uh, and the, the Roman history is full of these kinds of things. Um, the most striking case of all is as, as the Romans developed this skill, because I see it as a skill, as a kind of technology, a, a technology a mental technology for dealing with the world and changing it, they began to, to, it began to expand in its scope. So for example, we not only have adoption by, by fathers of sons, but once you get into Roman imperial history, you actually have an, a dynasty, the Severan dynasty, retroactively adopting itself into a previous dynasty, right? So choosing your ancestors, and committing to that legally so strongly that that dynasty understands itself in all of its, its public monuments and its official acts as an extension of that previous dynasty. So for example, one of the members of the Severan dynasty um, who 
granted citizenship to all free people in the empire, this is Caracalla in 212, those people who acquired citizenship from him were known as Aurelius. They were Aurelii because his official name was Aurelius, Marcus Aurelius, from the dynasty into which his own had adopted itself backwards. It's phenomenal. So you have millions of people across the empire whose very name, as you find it in Egyptian papyri and everything, is the result of the whole society committing to that fiction. And I think that the creation of New Rome is an example of that. Um, in other words, they were able to build a city over there in Byzantium and say, we're going to treat this as if it were Rome and, and commit to that. And the result is, well, Byzantine civilization in, in, in part of it. Anyway, so that's the broad picture. Um, and, and I thought that Jake would be a great person to have in this conversation because I, I've, I've had previous discussions with him about social history in particular um, and the way in which uh, Byzantine society treated people um, uh, based on legal categories and how people were assigned to legal categories. And I knew that he would, he would have some great questions uh, about this concept. Um, I, um, I, I, I've given a name to this concept. I call it quasity from Latin quasi, because when it occurs in Latin texts, it, the, the term quasi is uh, pretty frequently used. That is, we're going to treat this quasi it were that. I just call it quasity. But I knew that he would have a lot of questions, especially reading the article um, and, and application to other things that I hadn't thought of. And we'll get into some of those. Uh, but Jake, you want to start off with just some of your impressions or reactions? Yeah, well, thanks very much, Anthony. Uh, you know, and it, it strikes me that we can even understand the very conceptual category of Romanness itself in Byzantium as tied to this mode of thinking, to this power of imagination, right? It allows the Byzantines to get around the problem of difference when it comes to being Roman. They're not speaking or writing Latin. They're not in possession of the city of Rome, but they're going to act like those things don't exist or don't, or those differences don't exist, right? Or that those things don't matter in order to kind of carry on identifying themselves as Romans. Yeah, you're exactly right. So citizenship is, is another one of these domains in which the Romans practice this. In fact, some of the earliest uh, attestations of quasity is when a Roman magistrate, this is under the Republic, they're faced with this complex legal situation. What happens in legal disputes between Roman citizens and like non-Romans in the provinces? And very often the magistrates will, will just say, well, for the sake of convenience, I'm just going to treat you as if you were a Roman citizen and sort of apply Roman law to both of you and just resolve the situation. Um, so there's definitely an aspect of that. Um, that is this idea that, okay, so this population, they're not Romans by any in any sense that we understand as of now, but through a, a legal act, a fictive act that is an act that creates, we're going to make them Roman and treat them as such from here on. Um, and you very rarely hear in, in, in all of the hundreds of years of Roman history of someone who, who is given Roman citizenship, but not treated as a real Roman, mm -hmm. right? Like how different that is from modern societies in many ways, right? Where we have legal frameworks, and in many cases, they, they come from Rome, but we also have this underlying racial logic, and we, we right. can't get rid of it. 
and and we 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 talk about you know real Americans or, or you know whatever right real Germans not just legal Germans that didn't happen in the Roman tradition and, which and I think that's extraordinary and so when when modern historians or even medieval uh, writers are saying that those Easterners aren't real Romans they're Greeks they're something else they're applying a logic that's sort of racial and not Roman. So Romans don't have this. And, and I think the Byzantines generally, uh, with very, very few exceptions, just followed that same logic, right? It, and that's what you were saying, right? That Romanness is not an aspect of you know, ethnic continuity or mm-hmm. language or whatever. It's, it emerges from this legal fiction that is as ancient as Rome. Right. So uh, I wanted to ask Jake, uh, had you read this article before Anthony suggested that you read it? And uh, if not, what was the effect of the article on you? Well, no, I hadn't read this article before. Um, And I found it very provocative, um, thinking about it in terms of my own work, at least, um, which is focused on corporal punishment and political exclusion in the Byzantine world. Essentially, why was it that individuals who were mutilated in certain visible ways uh, were considered to be unfit to hold the position of emperor or to participate in certain ways in the political community, such that to blind someone or to cut off someone's nose effectively debarred them from becoming emperor in the Roman world. Um, And so this, thinking about this article actually was really interesting to me um, in that respect, right? Seeing um, the ways in which uh, Roman imagination and by extension potentially Byzantine imagination was quite so kind of flexible, uh, adoption in particular, maybe think about this, right? So Anthony mentioned this, uh, you know, the Severan dynasty. Septimius Severus is a Punic-speaking North African um, who comes to power and sort of retroactively adopts himself into the Antonine dynasty. And so creates this genealogy of uh, legitimacy, but everybody sort of accepts that, right? That this guy who, um, uh, you know, doesn't have any kind of hereditary claim necessarily, um, you know, comes from a... a, a unusual background, is able to make himself emperor and make himself accepted as emperor. And that continues into the Byzantine era, right? I mean, there's no really strong dynastic system. There's no fixed nobility in Byzantium. Um, So we can think about this, the flexibility of fictive mentality as potentially the kind of positive counterpoint to mutilation in a world without a lot of these rules and strictures on who can become emperor and who can't. uh, Mutilation, right? The understanding of what an emperor ought to be able to do and what an emperor ought to look like carries a little bit more weight in terms of the power of exclusion. Right? Every society has to come up with rules as to who can be included, who can participate, and who can't. Um, and so in the lack of kind of strong hereditary rules, you get uh, these kind of physical rules or physical understandings that come into play. Yeah, and so the mutilation kind of functions as a, as a social commitment to exclusion. Right. <laughs> So in a society that can be very inclusive in terms of who can occupy the throne, mm-hmm. right? You, you have to make very visible a consensus, a collective act to exclude someone. And even in those cases, it didn't always work, right? As, as we always know, as we know, there are, there's one emperor with no nose. There's one who's That's right. blind. Right? So you, you can even That's get right. around that. It, right. it, it's, it's what was difficult for the Byzantines was to find the, 
and, and, and clearly demark the criteria for exclusion. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right? That's right. In, the, in this world that's made so expansive in many ways by commitments to social fiction. Yeah, so, so um, yeah. here's another extent. Here's another interesting extension of all of this. And and just to give you an illustration of how deep I think this goes into Byzantine mentalities of all kinds. So we talked about dynasties. Um, so retroactively treating themselves as extensions of previous dynasties, um, or cities being created and treated as extensions or daughters or whatever that pick the rhetoric of other cities. The same happens with the imperial position, so in the sense that like when Diocletian, for example, picks a colleague, like there used to be one emperor and he decides, well, we just need two. (laughs) There's too much going on. I I can't do all this by myself. We're just going to create two emperors. And he picks a a colleague, uh, Maximian. And, And then there's this whole apparatus is put into operation for treating Maximian and Diocletian as the same thing like as one spirit in two bodies and all of, you know, we've, we've seen even the images of statues of the tetrarchy that emerge out of this, where they're treated as interchangeable, they're depicted as interchangeable, right? So they're, they're, they're commit to treating two people as if they were one, right? Okay, now there's another theory, which is that in some legal contexts, you can treat the image of the emperor as if it were the emperor right? So people could go to a public image of the emperor and appeal to it legally. And that was treated legally as if the emperor were physically there and the person were physically interacting with the emperor, right? Um, And this could be done. There were a number of of legal contexts in which this could happen. And, And the converse was true. Like if you attacked a representation of the emperor, it was treated as if you had physically assaulted the emperor, right? Okay. So that theory, that treating the image under certain context, in certain context, counted as if you were interacting directly with the emperor. That was later picked up by defenders of icons in Byzantium. So when, say, Theodore Studius or other iconophile theorists are trying to explain how it's not idolatry for Christians to be venerating images of Christ or Mary or the saints, they fell back on this precise theory. And the idea is that you are venerating the, you're, you're, you're directing worship at a physical image that you know is not Christ, is not the saint, but you're doing it as if the image were that person because the veneration sort of passes through the icon to the holy person. So in context of veneration, you treat the image as if it were the thing itself. And, and, and there's a direct, I think there's a direct genealogical line in intellectual history uh, from uh, what we were talking about emperors to icon worship in Byzantium, the, the fundamental theory of icon worship. And it's full of the quasi language uh, in Greek, Hosper. So you you venerate the icon Hosper as if it were Christ, right? And mm. there you go. I think that's a fundamentally Roman way of thinking. Um, but anyway, 
Well, I, I have a lot of questions about that, Anthony. Um, but about the, the the ways in which this mode of thinking is fundamentally Roman, or by extension, kind of fundamentally East Roman or, or Byzantine. Um, I mean, this is this is particularly interesting to me, and I, I wonder if we can get a kind of firmer handle on just how distinctive this fictive way of thinking is to Byzantium. Because one can you know, point to examples in the medieval West, let's say, of similar thinking used to get around conceptual or procedural hurdles. The, the example that comes to my mind is the legal fiction of the king's two bodies, this idea developed by medieval jurists that every king has his actual physical body, which suffers and dies, and his other symbolic or spiritual body, which is immortal. And that was a very useful concept in the West. It gave jurists and theorists all sorts of ways to circumvent problems around continuity and becomes very important for a whole lot of political thought in the West. Um, and this kind of seems to me not unlike some of the Byzantine examples we were just discussing, right? On the face of it, duplicating the king's bodies so that he now has two bodies instead of one isn't all that far from duplicating Rome and Constantinople or duplicating the number of emperors in the Tetrarchy. And I'm sure we could come up with any number of other cases from the West or from the Islamic world or elsewhere. Uh, but in kind of general categorical terms, I wonder what you see as setting Byzantium apart. Sure. So that's an excellent question. And it's actually part of the, So I haven't written about this, anything. This, this, this podcast that everybody's listening to, this is the first time that I think this idea has been applied to Byzantium and, and I haven't done it in print and I'm still working out some of the, some of the problems. And you're exactly right. Like this is the kind of thing that I'll have to address. Like what are the, um, the, the cultural boundaries of, of this idea? What counts, what doesn't? Um, so my instinct is to say that, well, obviously Western legal theorists, you know, were in part uh, coming from the same tradition of Roman law that they had studied and they were certainly exposed to this kind of idea. Uh, but here is one of the criterion that I set for um, seeing quasity in action, as it were. What I expect to see is some kind of social commitment to the fiction. In other words, some kind of social practice that you can trace to um, an acceptance uh, of this uh, equation or fiction or whatever. So that when, it, when we have to do with icons, it is the actual veneration of the icon which has a theory behind it when it comes to the inclusion of new people under the umbrella of Romanness. So we, we take a group and this happened in Byzantium. We'll take, you know, Muslims or Iranian types or whatever, and they come in, they're refugees or whatever. And, uh, and through these fictive acts, we make them into Romans and we treat them as such thereafter, like with, without some prejudice or, you know, they're not second class Romans or anything like that. So there's a kind of social practice that's generated by the fictive act. So my question about the King's Two Bodies would be, and, and by the way, it's been since grad school since, <laughs> since I read that book. So I'm not entirely sure of what, it's, what, what footprint it casts on the societies that develop this theory. Mm -hmm. Are there actual social practices that are generated by it that, that wouldn't make any sense without the, the fictive act? Mm -hmm. Or is this confined to the theoretical domain? In other words, where certain legal theorists are trying to work out certain legal problems that preoccupied them, but nobody in society at large is aware that this theory is in place. So that would be my criterion. Show me the social practice that, that requires the fictive act. Do, do you know what I mean? 
Yeah. And it, it might very well exist, I mean, in the medieval West as well. That's right. And, and it can still in some ways be a, a, an inheritance from Rome, right? I mean, there, there is some of this Roman political theory that, that, and legal theory that continues to persist in the West as well, right? So we can still kind of genealogically trace these back to a Roman legacy, um, even if perhaps it's less pervasive than it is in Byzantium, which is, in fact, you know, the continuation of Rome. Yeah. Um, yeah, so every... Um, item of sort of social history and intellectual thought that um, intellectual history that I come across and I sort of scrutinize it, does this fit the model or not? Right. Mm -hmm. So I ask, so where's the social practice? But yeah. I also, there also needs to be some sort of awareness of, of, of a, either a parallel difference or an original difference. And there's that this thing originally was not how I'm treating it now, or that it has certain aspects that don't fit. For example, this is just a piece of wood and not Christ, even though for the purposes of worship, I'm treating it that way, right? Uh, so here is a, a different um, idea that in the end, I'm not putting under this category. And that is the theology of the Trinity. Because at first I was kind of, it kind of blew my mind. I thought, wait a minute, is this whole idea of treating three as if they were one, <laughs> Is it just another thing that's enabled by this Roman power of the imagination? Because this was, a, this was probably the major problem of Christian theology. How do we have three, call them what you will, personae, whatever, that are one, indivisibly one, but three, right? And, so, you know, half the days of the week, I would think, yeah, that's kind of what they're doing. And if I look hard enough, I'll find the host spare language. But I haven't yet. In other words, I don't think that, the, so the theology of the Trinity, the Nicene theology of the Trinity, it doesn't um, keep in the background this kind of sense of, of difference that the theology is overcoming through a fictive act. No, they were totally committed to, no, these are the same entity one in the same and indivisible. And I didn't find that, that whole element of pretense. You know what I mean? And, and I don't mean pretense in a bad way. I, I hope that's pretty clear right by now, that, that pretense is a strong, generative, and creative um, <clears throat> uh, skill um, in these context, contexts. So that's one that I have taken off the list. Hmm. I wanted to ask you, uh, before even getting to the theology of the Trinity, whether uh, this quality of the Romans has had an impact on the shaping of Christianity altogether. Because listening to you now, it seems like, like it does. You, you already mentioned the, uh, this surviving in, uh, uh, in later phases with the, the icons, so uh, would you like to comment on that? Sure. Um, and Jay, correct me here if, if either I go too far, I don't go far enough. Um, because I've only just begun to think about this. And there are, certain, there are certain aspects of Christian thought and practice that fall under this category. I wouldn't want to go so far as to treat, you know, Christianity as a whole as being part of it. That's, that's, one of, that's a case of like when you're holding a hammer, everything starts looking like a nail. Um, and I, I don't want to do that, right? So icon worship is something very specific that, that seemed to match the criteria. Um, <clears throat> and there are other aspects. Um, so for example, 
aspects of Christian imperial ideology. Uh, now we're getting back to emperors and dynasties, but I think that that is a site where um, this kind of thinking was very prevalent. So for example, in the, um, oh, which one was it? The fifth, no, no, the sixth ecumenical council, Emperor Constantine the fourth talks about how he has been in a certain sense, retroactively adopted by God. And, and he uses the word eosesia, right? And because he's been retroactively adopted by God, this creates certain consequences for him um, in that he has to act as if X, Y, and Z, because we have to treat the empire that he's governing as if it were God's house and he's its custodian or something like that. And so that, and that creates expectations and responsibilities on the emperor that are played out in the council. So that's a, another very specific aspect. Now, if I wanted to get, um, if I want to speak more broadly, I think that there's an interesting parallel between the rise of Christianity and the creation of the universal Roman empire at the same time, like leading up to Constantine and beyond. And this has not been explored by scholars very much. So scholars of early Christianity tend to stay away from Roman questions. Um, and many Roman historians think that things change too much for their liking once Christians become too you know, prevalent. And so those two fields often don't intersect very well. Uh, but, uh, there were there were two kinds of people that the empire was producing at great rates between the first and the fourth century, and that was Romans and Christians, uh, and and it was doing so in part through these processes, um, and I think those processes kind of mirrored each other. That is, if if you look at texts that are talking about how Romans are created, and like Elias Aristides' oration on Rome which is like how Rome goes around creating Romans and texts at the same time, which are talking about how the Christian community is expanding. They're very, they're structurally very similar, possibly homologous. And, you know, we have texts that talk about, you know, Christians aren't limited to this place or that place. And they're not just come from one city or one ethnos, but they come from, you know, you know them by the laws from which they live and the, yeah, and that's, you're describing the Roman community. It's exactly the same thing. Now, what, you know, what role processes of the imagination play in this? I, I haven't thought that deeply, but I think there's a lot of potential there. Hmm. That's right. I, I'm still thinking through, I guess, these, these boundaries between kind of imagination and belief and, and committing to a certain fiction and how one, one gets from the point of kind of acting as if something were true to really ontologically believing something is true um, with a distinction between that. But I, I guess where I'm going is, is thinking about kind of different types of phenomena that maybe fit or, or don't fit. So the, the example of Constantine IV being adopted by God kind of, um, yeah, uh, is that is that just? I mean, can we see this as being? Can we classify that as being a kind of fictive imagining in the same way that the duplication of of Rome as Constantinople is, or or the claiming of a Roman identity, or um, is this merely merely kind of imperial 
propaganda, right? Something that's being being projected to legitimize rule. Um, but you know, people kind of roll their eyes and say, "Oh, you know." I mean, the the, the distinction that comes to mind, you know, we I think of something like uh, you know. Trump's inauguration, where he'll say, oh, I had the biggest crowd turnout in history, right? And, uh, you know, people just kind of, you can see that it's not true. You kind of roll your eyes and say, okay, whatever, you know? Um, or is this really, you know, so where does the line fall between fictive imagining on the one hand and kind of propaganda on the other? Yeah, that also is a, it, it's a great question and it's, it's a very difficult one. And I think the, the obstacle that we face in trying to draw a line between those two is in the way that we think about belief. I think belief is mm. our real problem here um, because it's not a very good concept. I mean, we use it a lot, but you know, talk to any psychologist or even neuropsychologist and you'll find that what historians and humanists call belief doesn't really correspond very well to what we know about how the mind operates. And it covers such a broad territory of cognitive processes that are so complex um, <clears throat> that I don't think the term has analytical value in the sense that it doesn't, it's not precise enough to help us cope with these concepts, um, except, you know, on the you know, broadest possible level. So the, the ability of the Romans to um, to imagine that something was the case and then carry on as if it were. I don't think that this is a, uh, an instance of belief. And like, I don't think belief had anything to do with it. It was a commitment to a certain kind of social process. They're not believing like, oh, now I really believe that that is R New Rome over there on the Bosporus. Like it's mm -hmm. some sort of confessional, like I will sign that statement. Mm -hmm. It's a decision to carry on as if it were because we have very good reasons for doing that, mm -hmm. like pragmatic reasons. And so, I, and, and I, see, I, I see a lot of these behaviors falling into that kind of pattern. So when emperors claim certain things, right, like this, or, you know, modern politicians make certain kinds of claims. Uh, well, like in our current context, for example, I don't think that a lot of these things are actually believed, but I don't think that's the important thing about them. I don't think that's why they're being said. Um, the people who say them sometimes think that, that they have to defend their belief of them. And sometimes they'll even often offer reasons. Like they, they wouldn't otherwise come up with conspiracy theories to explain why the photos looked like <laughs> the mall was so empty on that day, right? If they didn't mean it to, like I'm committing to the ontological reality there that, yeah, I believe that. But I think that's the smallest part of the phenomenon. I, I, I think that those kinds of statements are uh, primarily performances of identity and affiliation and so forth, where the truth content is ultimately irrelevant. Um, and I, a lot of imperial pronouncements in Byzantium, I think, fall somewhere along that category. And, you know, what Constantine said at the Ecumenical Council you know, it, it's a it's a statement that didn't it didn't cast cast um, a long shadow over Byzantine civilization. Like I don't see people acting out that imagination that he proposed to them. I I don't see emperors generally taking on the role of God's adopted children. Like that 
that this didn't catch on, right? So I, I, I see that as a kind of momentary, almost experimental, like I'm going to kind of play with my position and cast, and cast it this way for the purposes of this meeting. Um, but it didn't, either was never intended to catch on or it just didn't catch on. This did not become a, a fundamental mode of the Roman imperial office. Right. And so in that context, I would treat it as a very situational performance. I wouldn't say it's either true or false, like whether people believed in it or not. The question is, did they commit to it at that moment? I think so, yes. But it did, they didn't take it with them when they left the, um, oh, what, the it was in the Trullo, actually, in the, in the Trullo chamber. They didn't, they didn't take it with them. Um, so that's kind of how I read that. But it, it really goes to how we see human psychology. Right. So how we gauge commitment then, right, yeah. is, um, is how it shows up in social consequences. It's its power to really shape practice in a, in a kind of applied way. That's our, our kind of heuristic for thinking about, you know, when people commit, when a society commits to, uh, uh, to a concept. Yeah. Look, the, probably the most striking um, or um, easily accessible way in which modern audiences can visualize this is in the way in which, let's say, immigrants are accepted into a society. Does the society commit to treating them as the same, as equals? Like, yeah, you're, not, you're now part of the group and we're going to treat you that way, or not. And the, the Roman model is the one in which they are, where a Punic speaking, <laughs> a Punic speaking person from North Africa can become a Roman emperor right? And even start restoring monuments to Hannibal, of all things, right? Um, and because Roman society was just very open to that, and once they committed to their idea of citizenship, they did it. Um, so look, just look around you. Which societies operate that way, which don't? Like, the U.S. is kind of mixed. Let's, let's put it like that, right? Um, classic... Um, Comparisons are between, say, France and Germany in terms of how they imagine nationality. Um, they, they have very different models, right? But France is a country that, since the revolution, has tended to see, you know, being French as a commitment. It's not part of, it's not necessarily where your ancestors are from. It's not necessarily your language. It's part of a commitment to certain kinds of principles. And they're not perfect, <laughs> obviously. Uh, but that's kind of where you would gauge. So that's so I, that's the example that I use to turn attention away from belief to to social commitment. Mm -hmm. And 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 I think the Romans were really really good at it. Does that make sense? Yeah. Well, so thinking again about the Romans and the Byzantines being so good at this, right? Do you think that this both the power of imagination to kind of shape social practice helps account for the empire's pretty remarkable resilience. Uh, I mean, you know, Byzantium has this reputation of what John Holden called the empire that wouldn't die, and rightly so. And I think this is one of the most fascinating aspects of Byzantium, its exceptional capacity to recover from disaster, to adapt to very different political and social and indeed environmental circumstances. Uh, so I wonder if you see a role for the kind of flexible practicality we're talking about in explanations of the empire's longevity. Yes, absolutely I do. 
Almost anything important that we say about Byzantium ultimately is a factor in its longevity, right? Because it's, this is a state that um, if you add its earlier Roman component lasts for the better part of two millennia. This is, and, and as a continual, as a state entity with a continual history, not as a broad culture that went through a number of different state iterations, right? Um, and so I think that any, any, anything fundamental that we can say about it was certainly part of um, an explanation for its longevity. Um, but think about it this way. A society certainly has a kind of advantage if it can reimagine itself and commit to yeah, being in a different geographical location, um, consisting of, of people who have very different of ethnic backgrounds, of changing language. So over the course of its long history, the, the Roman people gradually changed their religion, they changed their language, they changed their capital city, they changed, right? They changed all of these things and, and they were able to do so very flexibly, though each of those changes took a very long time. It's not like you can do this on the, you know, like are, they are human beings, right? I mean, they can't just change at the drop of a hat but they're willing to imagine themselves as sort of oriented a bit differently as the centuries went by and adapting to uh, different circumstances uh, again and again. Uh, they were very resilient at doing that. And, and I think that this helped. So what are the limits of this concept that is in the article? Uh, Jake, you wanted to, you want to start with that? Um, sure. Yeah. The limits of this concept are in terms of its actual application. Um, you know, I'm still thinking about kind of the, the ways in which we can parse or disaggregate some of the, um, the kind of different categories or species of examples that, that we've, we've included under the heading of fictive mentality, right? So my mind goes back to Richardson's example of, uh, for legal purposes, Roman law treating... Um, non-Roman citizens as if they were Roman citizens, right? They, uh, Richardson goes into this. This is actually one of the, the principal examples that he gives. Um, he says, you know, Romans treat non-Romans as if they were citizens for the purpose of a court case or, or for the poor magistrates, right? They treat uh, magistracies. They treat a private citizen as if he were a consul. They kind of pretend like he had the, the power of a consul. But um, you know, nobody thinks a proconsul is, is actually a consul. Ontologically, they don't lose sight of the fact that the non-Roman citizen in Roman court isn't a Roman citizen, even though he's being treated as one for the purposes of this case, or the proconsul who sent out to Spain to command the army. He's, he's not actually a consul, and nobody really loses sight of that, even though they act like the consequences, um, they commit to the consequences of that decision, right? Um, and still, there's, there's, there's something of a difference there between that kind of legal fiction that Richardson is talking about and the extension of that into um, the Byzantine era, which let's say the, the, uh, the problem of Romanness, right? And the Byzantines kind of saying, we are Romans. Um, it's not that they're losing sight. Of, they, they've committed to a Roman identity, but it's not sort of like they're saying, well, you know, we're going to act as if, um, you know, we, we realize this isn't true but we're going to act as if it is. They've defined the category of Roman in such a way that um, these other things don't matter. And so that does seem like a distinction to me, that kind of legal 
way in which Richardson is talking about this fictive mentality working and the kind of, for lack of better term, ontological way that we see it come up in Byzantium. And the relationship between those two types of examples is something that's interesting to me and something I'd like to think more about. Is there kind of an evolution in the Republican period from this legal fiction into this this other type of commitment we see in Byzantium? Do these things kind of coexist? Um, or do they exist on the spectrum between like on the far end, a total fictive, you know, pro-magistrate and on, on, on the other end, um, the Trinity, where they've totally committed to this, right? Or, or to icons where it, it, ends, it ends up really um, becoming an issue of belief. So I, the relationship between those are things that I think we'd have to uh, think about more in terms of applying this concept. That's excellent. Yes, I, I couldn't put it better. Um, just to add to what you're saying. So there are cases where the difference remains visible uh, or, or very prominent as this when you're treating someone who isn't a Roman citizen as if he were for the purposes of a case or you're treating a piece of wood as if it were Christ. Like you're very aware that it isn't, right? Um, something like New Rome is a more intermediate case because it's it's treated like that pervasively, but it's not in Italy. Uh, you know, it's it's in Thrace. Like you you know that. Um, uh, even if that doesn't really impinge on their consciousness that much. Um, in fact, there are many cases where the Byzantines call Constantinople just Rome and not New Rome. I mean, it even got, got to that point. Um, all the way to the other side of the spectrum where citizenship, uh, you're right. Like th there isn't this kind of conditional, yeah, we know that this, but we're going to treat ourselves as that. There, like that condition seems to have like really evaporated. It, it comes back a little bit when in the later Byzantine period when they start, um, you know, investigating their Greek roots again <laughs> for various right. reasons. And so there they have to, you know, because they're carrying on a dialogue with the Latins in Western Europe and they're like, yeah, we're Romans, but this kind and it's anyway. Um, so you're right. There are different degrees of difference that are implicit in, in, in the fictive act. And I'm not sure what sort of methodological uh, problems they pose, uh, but, but you're right. I mean, this is something that um, certainly I would need to think about more. A and another methodological problem is, well, is this completely distinctive to the Roman tradition? Um, and it's clearly more visible there, but would we totally fail to find similar things if we looked into ancient Greek you know, practices, like no, nothing. Um, and I'm pretty sure that we would. Um, because there are other social practices that, that might have a more uh, complex uh, genealogy. Uh, so for example, consider in monastic groups, everybody treating each other as a brother, right? That, that the, where you're, you're rehashing kinship terms, um, to express non-kin relations in a, in a spiritual or symbolic way. I'm pretty sure that that has a, you know, a rich background in all kinds of, I mean, ritual brotherhood is mm -hmm. like across all societies. Um, so uh, there, there are aspects that might have a more complex genealogy, um, but uh, um, but it's certainly the more prominent in the Roman tradition. And I think the Roman tradition was very prominent in Byzantine civilization. So that's why I've 
foregrounded it, but uh, the details remain to be worked out. Yeah, that's a good, good question, Anna. Thank you. I would like to thank you both for an amazing discussion, uh, which um, clarifies some aspects of Byzantine beliefs, but also helps us understand current situations and issues that today's societies are facing. And um, I would like to wish you both uh, good luck with uh, the projects you're working on right now. Jake, uh, may you finish your thesis. And uh, uh, Anthony, may you finish your book, your monumental book. So thank you very much. Thank you again. Thank you, Anna. Thank you, Anna. Podcast musical theme is from the Concerto in E-flat, Dumbarton Oaks, by Igor Stravinsky, recorded by the Smithsonian Chamber Orchestra, Kenneth Slowick conducting. Special thanks to Anthony Caldellis, Judy Lee, and Lane Wilson for making this podcast possible. And thank you for joining us, and we hope that you tune in to our next episode.